and then if, if you're, you're serious about it and you want to like do this business in scale, um, I see a lot of people, I think, make mistakes because they have, um, you know, oh, I want a deal. Any deal is a good deal. I don't care where it's yeah. located. Yeah. So they buy a deal in Alabama, then one in Indiana, then one in Ohio, and then one in Kentucky. And then they're spread all over with 50 unit properties all over the entire country. And it's really hard to manage that one. And then two, you know, you've got to get a reputation in that marketplace. So if you just own one little deal in this little marketplace, there's only 10,000 units in that marketplace compared to like Dallas Fort Worth has 800,000 market rate apartment units. You know, how many units can we really grow and scale? And it's yeah. not the best use of time. So if you want to be a player that, that owns you know, thousands of units, you know, generally speaking, you need to be in a major metropolitan area. Maybe you pick two or three and you focus on those. Don't pick, yeah. don't focus on 20. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexander. Now, let's get to it. Hey, our sponsor for the show today is Pine Financial Group, the leader in hard money lending in Colorado and Minnesota, and they were recently approved to offer their investment publicly. This investment offers only for investors in Colorado and Minnesota and is only made through their investment prospects. Get your copy today. Simply visit www.pineinvestments.com and click to get started. Look, there's a reason why some of the wealthiest people in history invest in loans backed by real estate. Learn more about the risks and returns at www.pineinvestments.com. Hey, welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexhammer. With me today, I'm excited to have Michael Becker. Michael, how are you doing today? Todd, doing good. How are you? I am fantastic, and thanks for joining me. Michael Becker is a principal of SPI Advisory LLC and heads SPI's Dallas, Texas office. SPI Advisory specializes in repositioning multifamily assets. Through professional asset management and a high level of integrity, SPI Advisors increases the value of properties while improving quality life for its residents. Um, and I'll let Michael kind of go a little bit more in depth with SPI, but before we let him talk, uh, they have done, um, it in the last six years, approximately, um, about 9,000 units in the Dallas, Force, Dallas, Fort Worth and, uh, Austin markets. And prior to that, Michael was a 15 year veteran, uh, commercial real estate banker and, uh, originated probably a lot of mortgages. So Michael, with that said, why don't you give our listeners a little bit more about your background and then your focus today and, and kind of what you're doing. Well, thanks for having me, Todd. Uh, so yeah, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm based, uh, uh, principal at SPI Advisory. I'm based in Dallas and head up our Dallas-Fort Worth office. And my business partner, Sean, uh, runs our Austin office. But uh, prior to getting into the business, as, as you mentioned, I was a Long-time commercial real estate lender, and really the last six or seven years of my commercial uh, banking job, I focused on uh, pretty much exclusively value-add multifamily lending. Um, so I would just uh, helped a lot of these deals coming out of the recession, built a, pro a bridge program out, and kind of helped them uh, put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I guess uh, is what we did with my my product and. Kind of through that process, just realized I was on the, the wrong side of all those deals. So it's kind of better to be the the borrower than the lender. So I went out and started in uh, 2010 or 2011, started buying some smaller stuff, my own money, and realized that wasn't very scalable. 
um, after doing about 15 or 16 uh, rent houses. So I, I transitioned over and kind of reflected back to what I was doing all day, every day at work. And we started doing some larger scale multifamily deals. So kind of as of uh, we record this today, I think we just closed on our 39th property, 38th to 39th property, uh, just shy of 9,000 units. We sold uh, several of them now, kind of full cycle on what are 17 deals. I think we've gone full cycle on now. We've sold 13 and we've had uh, four more that we've refinanced, returned some capital, still own. So as we talk right now, we're just under 6,000 units. I wish I, I should know exactly what the number is, but it's like 58, 5,900 units, somewhere in that kind of ballpark. Um, and as you mentioned, we focused you know, predominantly on Dallas-Fort Worth, and then we went to Austin about a year ago. So we have about 900 or so units in Austin, and uh, everything else is pretty much up in North Texas where, where I live. So excited to, uh, to have you on here and try to, uh, try to share a little bit of knowledge on kind of how we got from uh, zero to almost 6,000 today. Yeah, I, that, and that's where I want to go next, because I think a lot of listeners probably heard you and just went, holy cow, like, how, how do you have, how have you done 9,000 units, you currently own about 6,000, like, what the heck did you do in that short of a period of time in order to get that? So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how, what did you do to be able to scale up so quickly and start from essentially zero um, to now having 6,000 units under management. Yeah. yeah so we, um, you know, when we started out, I, I, I had a, a lot of things at my disposal. So, you know, I had a little bit of monies cause I, uh, a pretty successful banker so i uh, lived below my means and saved my saved my pennies so i had a little bit of money but certainly was not wealthy by any, any stretch of the imagination i had but what i really had was i had a lot of relationships and i had a lot of uh, experience underwriting deals because you know professionally all day every day i would just underwrite deal after deal as well as i'd have to uh, manage the portfolio so i got to kind of see what the what my clients did some did good things and some did the bad things and kind of observe without having any risk capital. And then I also had a lot of relationships. So I knew a lot of the management companies, a lot of the, the contractors uh, by just approving the draws, as well as uh, I knew a lot of the bankers because I was a pretty prominent, uh, a lot of the brokers as a pretty prominent banker in, in Dallas. And then I you know, did a lot of, uh, a lot of loans I uh, made were on properties they sold, so they wouldn't get paid till my loan funded. So everyone kind of knew where I was. What I needed to do was I needed to kind of um, change the perception of, of um, the marketplace for Michael Becker. So the marketplace saw me as a banker, not as a principal. And those are definitely two different things. So yep. um, what I, the way I basically got started was I met my uh, now business partner, Sean. When I was working for the bank, he was working for a broker out of Beverly Hills that helped high net worth individuals in L.A. and Orange County buy properties in Texas. I made a loan to one of their clients, uh, flew out to meet his client, and that's kind of how we met. So what they started doing was had um, had a local kind of operator put a little bit of money in these deals and kind of serve as a boots on the ground for the equity out, out, out of California. And they were working with a guy who kind of ran out of ran out of money, and I kind of knew that. So I was I was there raising my hand like, "Hey, I can I can do that," you know. So uh, so really, we ended up doing four deals, about eight hundred six months out of the gate while I still worked at the bank um, putting you know I put about five percent of the money required in, and they put 95 percent of the money in um, and basically I, the, what I really did is I just took a, a, a pretty small piece of the pie basically I put five percent and ten percent ownership and a small asset management fee which is you know not a whole lot of not a whole lot of equity for the amount of work that you do 
But right. what I was really focused on, Todd, was, um, you know, I kind of made a decision to get out of the bank and I was going to do that orderly over six to nine months. And I, if I knew if I could change the perception of the marketplace from a banker to a principal, um, I can I can just kind of take off from there, which is exactly what we did. So taking 800 units down in six months, um, they, they, they changed the, uh, the perception in the marketplace pretty quick. You know, really, once you do your first deal, it's kind of proven, you're proven commodity to a certain extent. If you can do four of them, you're, uh, you know, you kind of become a player at that point. Yep. Yep. So what was to get to, to continue to buy those units, obviously it wasn't just deals Were deals just falling on your lap. Was this that easy? Investors are falling out of the sky or how did, uh, how did so, it all? So at first, uh, what we, what we also had was Sean took a, a really large investor from his previous company. Okay. And so these deals were, were easier from the standpoint, you know, we were buying C-class properties that were in the twenties or maybe low thirties thousands of units back in 2013 and then you fast forward today those same properties are you know 80 to 100,000 a unit so uh you know the, the the total dollars were so much lower so the amount of equity you know yeah one to two million dollar kind of equity checks that these exact same properties today would take you know seven or eight million dollars in equity to get done so one the hurdle was a little bit lower two we were we were willing to work for a little bit less to start to kind of delay a little bit of uh, gratification so again you know, I would just focus on doing good quality deals and returning capital and building my reputation out. So that was really my primary focus. It wasn't as much as making you know as much money as possible because I knew that would follow if if we can do these well and kind of set my career up. And then uh, and then two, we were fortunate enough to have one equity partner that was crazy enough to give us a bunch of money for uh, for the first several deals that we did, and he would help us kind of front some of the pursuit costs as well as, uh, you know, be your equity partner, as well as sign on the loan. Um, since he owned 90% of the deal, um, he would sign on the loan as well. So we helped qualify for the mortgages that we got, as well as kind of front the 100000 or whatever in pursuit costs that we needed for earnest money and fronting the lawyer and, and things along, uh, along those lines. Um, so that, that was really, really helpful. You know, what we needed to do, the deals were a little easier to find from the standpoint there wasn't, quite as a hyper wasn't as hyper competitive and you didn't have to go hard at with day one with earnest money and all the crazy stuff you have to do today to kind of get some of these deals awarded and most of the major uh, metropolitan areas across the country. Yeah. What, what are you doing today to find deals? Cause you're, you're in Dallas, Fort Worth, you're in Austin yeah. to like markets that are uh, yeah, absolutely on fire. I mean, I, I'm not in either of those markets, but I know people that are, and I, and you hear about it. I mean, it's, you can't just sure. not hear about it. Uh, so, you know, those are hot markets, first of all. So how do you, how do you find the brokers or how do you find the deals? And then with that, how do you make sure you're not overpaying for deals? Cause you, as you just said, you're, you were buying properties for $30,000 a unit. Now they're at $100,000 a unit, uh, those same types of properties. How do you make sure you're actually not overpaying for these deals? You want to keep sure. on growing and expanding your business. You just closed on some deals. So obviously you're still doing business. Um, explain kind of some of that for me. Yeah, I mean, you know, now uh, everything's exponentially easier from the standpoint of, uh, you know, we've, I think we like said we closed like, like our 39th or 40th deal or something. Um, so at this point, uh, we're, we're pretty well a fixture in the, the marketplace over the cycle. 
So yeah. everyone knows who we are. I mean, they kind of knew who I was before, but everyone everyone knows who we are. So we're we're players, and we have a good reputation. So I think uh, with that, you kind of get your unfair share of deals. Uh, you know, that's one of the things I like to say. It's a completely unfair business. You know, a lot of it's who you know, what you know, what chips you can trade, what track record you have with um, all that yep. stuff come, comes into uh, into play. So if I'm bidding on a deal versus a guy that owns one or two deals in the marketplace, the seller is naturally going to want to gravitate towards me, assuming price and terms are, are equal just because I've done, you know, whatever, 20, 20x or whatever they have in transactions. Yep. So I'm much more of a sure bet than, than say you, if you're coming to this marketplace, even if you own another market, they don't necessarily know who you are. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just, so, so that helps, right? One, uh, two, you know, we're just, we're pretty, we're pretty active. I mean, we try to look at literally everything on market, off market, doesn't matter. We look at everything. And we just kind of scour and, and try to find deals. Um, so we're just looking at a lot of stuff. We're looking at more stuff than what we used to to find one that makes sense. Uh, a couple other thoughts. You know, one, you're having to adjust your expectations down, uh, in particular for like returns. You know, these first deals we did, I think we pro forma, you know, 22, 23% IRRs and, you know, 10, 11% cash on cash pretty much out of the gate. Um, and then when at the end of the day, when we sold them, I think we're like 60 IRRs and, you know, killed it. You know, I mean, every, every deal, like, you know, we did a good job. We bought right. But then the market rents kept going up and cap rates compressed. Yeah. And I looked like a genius uh, to triple your money in two years on many, many deals. And that's just not a fact of life today. That's just not practical to think that that's the state of the market today, nor can you continue to expect to have a lot of cap rate compression and over um, overheated market rental rate growth. It's just, it's just not going to happen most likely. So, you know, what we used to project 22s and delivered 60s, now we're projecting 14 and 15 IRRs, and we'll probably hopefully produce 14 and 15 IRRs because that's just a function of, of the marketplace. Um, again, a couple other things too, you know, as you get bigger, as you do more deals, you get um, better pricing, especially when it comes around debt. Um, so, you know, some of these deals, we just closed a loan that uh, we got a 30 day, we did a floater. So we did a 30 day live or plus 156. So, you know, that today is like a 3.8 pay rate. Um, and, you know, if we weren't uh, who we are, it would have been, you know, probably 30 day live or plus 180 or 185. Yeah. So, you know, we probably got 30 bips off just by being a repeat large client. Um, so, you know, as I say, it's an unfair business. If I can get 30 basis points lower on my debt, um, quote, than say the next guy, you know, the, my, my, my math looks better just by a function of having a uh, better pricing or if they give me an extra year or two of uh, interest only it helps you cash on cash returns relative to the next buyer. So we have a little bit of an unfair advantage from, from that standpoint, depending on who the competitor is. If I'm competing, it's a, like a Blackstone or some, some firm that owns, you know, 100,000 units, then we're relatively small compared to them. Um, and you can extrapolate that out to like insurance is another good example of that. Yeah. So if I have a big insurance portfolio policy, I get better insurance pricing and I can save $30 a unit in insurance pricing compared to the next guy that just helps our, just helps everything out. Um, so all those things, then how do you help to not overpay? I mean, um, quite honestly, I think everyone that's doing deals now, um, is probably slightly overpaying and that's just kind of the function of the marketplace. Um, so, you know, you got to make sure that, that you're buying deals that have, you know, clearly in well-located locations, 
um, that have you know prospects of future rental rate growth and that you have you know clear documented upside today that you know that the rental rates of the neighboring competitor set have you know hundred dollar higher rents and if I just go in and upgrade my interiors or upgrade my office area make it look like that property I can push my rents up uh, to there and then by extension I increase the value you know that that is certainly something, and then quite frankly, just the bigger uh, bigger we get, and the more we do, uh, we're going up the food chain. Because what I've really observed over the last six years, um, it's just the cap rates from um, the brand new top of the market class A to the C used to be wider spread between delta between the two. Now they're pretty much on top of themselves. So, like for example, if you go back when I first started in 2013, Dallas Fort Worth, you could buy a brand new class A deal for about a five cap. A B deal was about six, uh, six and a half cap or so, and a C deal was somewhere between eight and eight and a half cap. Fast forward to today, a brand new class A deal is like a 475, a B deal is like a five, and a C deal is like five and a quarter, you know, or something like that. So what used to be 350 basis points over spread is now within certainly a percentage point um, from brand new top of the market to kind of the, the lower property grades. So as I as I see that kind of the market change, it doesn't make as much sense to me to pay the same basic cap rate for a 1974 piece of crap building that I can for a 2004 vintage deal that is 30 years newer. So if they're basically the same cap rate and I have a $100 rental rate upside on both of them, really the only difference is kind of the purchase price because the rents tend to be higher on the newer stuff. And, uh, you know, so you, instead of raising, you know, 5 million bucks, you have to raise 15 million bucks and yeah. we have the ability to do that now. So we'll just go ahead and buy the bigger and better quality stuff. So I don't know if that answers your question, but those are kind of my, my rambling thoughts around uh, what you're asking. Yeah. And it's interesting when you talk about the cap rate, and I think that's very similar in most markets. And, and in my opinion, when I'm looking at, as I'm looking at a lot of these deals, I'm going, man, we, you worry about these cap rate compression that has happened and what will happen when the market eventually does take a cycle and, and uh, will cap rates at the C-class properties go from being at that five and a half or whatever they're at to back to that eight. Yeah. When you go look at where the A-class is, as you said, it used to be a five. Now it's a 4.75, maybe a four and a half. Well, that's not a lot of adjustment. Yeah, uh, to go back to kind of historicals. So the A class and the B class, to maybe a little lesser extent, they have less room to fall yeah. um, than the C class potentially. And I think the other thing that um, younger syndicators um, and you know we've been kind of the beneficiary of this as well. I think a lot what a lot of people kind of don't take properly into account is. Um, these older deals, you know, you have something built in the 1970s, you tend to have like cast iron sewers, boilers, maybe a chiller, um, you know, asphalt parking lot. So you come in, you buy a deal, you put aside five or 6,000 a unit, you renovate the property, and then magically over the last, you know, this entire cycle, you can sell your property two or three years later, and then the next guy comes in with more capital to do the 2.0 renovation and they fix it and they sell it again two or three years later. So what happens when you get um, you get stuck in a cycle and you got to own that 1970s deal for five or six years when you only set aside enough money to 
renovate at once. So what I like to say is these older deals, they're just kind of functionally obsolescent with a lot of their uh, construction components. Yeah. So these cast iron sewers that are, you know, 10 feet underground, you, they tend to kind of, you know, road over time. You have a sewer line collapse, cost you 10 or 15 grand, have a plumber dig under your building, replace 10 feet of sewer line and put it back together. And uh, so that doesn't like, that's a, a capital item. So it's kind of below the net NOI line. So it's, you know, booked as a capital expenditure, but it's a real use of cash. So yeah. if you don't have that money set aside, um, you know, and these, these, these things tend to happen on a more frequent basis, the older the asset, you know, it's just kind of a function of just got to maintain these things. Right. And I don't think people are properly accounting for that when you actually have to own it for a long period of time. And they're out there just trying to make sure that you show a return of capital to your investors. And because you have this pressure to, to deliver because you projected to have a 6% cash on cash year one, an eight year two or whatever it is. So you're distributing your money and maybe you're not properly keeping back some, some reserves or items like that. And you're more susceptible to have issues like that on the older so I'm, yeah. I'm a little worried about that for some of these guys kind of getting into the business. I don't uh, think through that a little bit. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I've had some older buildings and they definitely just inherently have more problems with, uh, especially with some of the systems, you know, your plumbing systems, your electrical systems, your HVAC systems. Uh, they just, those, those only have a certain life expectancy and yep. it, you know, and most of those buildings, especially if you're buying a '60s or '70s product, you're at you're at the life expectancy. It's 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 no longer you know any any day you have beyond uh, is is a actually you're getting a gift really, and so yeah, for sure you, you got to expect that stuff to break down. Hey, let's take a minute to thank our sponsor, Pine Financial Group. Look, you work hard for your money. Is your money working hard for you? Because of inflation, money sitting idle erodes your wealth. Many investors understand that real estate is a great investment, but may not want the effort or the risk that comes with owning their own property. They want to sit back and have payments, hit their bank account each and every month. Stop eroding your wealth and start building it by asking your money to work for you. You should be earning profits while you sleep in investment backed by real estate. Pine Financial Group, the leader in hard money lending in Colorado and Minnesota, was recently approved to offer their investment publicly. This investment offers only for investors in Colorado and Minnesota and is only made through the investment prospectus. Get your copy today. Simply visit www.pineinvestments.com and click to get started. There's a reason why some of the wealthiest people in history invest in loans backed by real estate. Learn more about the risks and returns at www.pineinvestments.com. It's www.pineinvestments.com. You've got these properties now. I want to talk about the success of your business and how, what are some things that you can give to our listeners to uh, operate a business successfully. What are the things that maybe you've done? And as a banker, you've seen other companies do that really uh, allow them to be successful. So I wish I was more intentional from when I, I started out. So we kind of fell backwards and got, got a little fortunate on some of the stuff. But, um, you know, really, when we started rolling, we had, um, you know, I had a business partner and we had basically one employee when we started. And then now there's a total of 10 of us in our company. So we have uh, my partner and I and eight employees and we employ a third party management company to do the 
day-to-day property management of, of the assets. Um, so we've been able to scale up with, you know, relatively small staff. I mean, if we self-manage and we're fully vertically integrated, we'd probably be 200 employees or something right. like that today if you had to have all the on-site staff and regional accounting and HR and all, all right. that stuff that comes with a management company. Um, so, you know, I think I think one of the things we did well was um, I picked a business partner that had a, comp- um, a completely different skill set to mine. So he's like the most um, brilliant guy when it comes to doing spreadsheets and analytical work, and he's got a really good sense of negotiation about them. Uh, I'm not saying I can't do a spreadsheet. I'm just not quite as good, but he's not very outgoing when it comes to, um, you know, talking to people and presenting and things like that. So, uh, you know, that's kind of really my role is kind of focus on investor relations and, you know, networking with a lot of the brokers and things like that and kind of oversee asset management where he's kind of more on the transactional side and, and underwriting. So um, by, by having, you know, if you can, if you can partner up with somebody, by having somebody that has a different skill set to you that complements yours, um, you know, you don't do twice the amount of work. You do three, four, five times the amount of work because you can do what you do well um, and just focus on that while someone else does the other things versus you having to struggle and spend a bunch of time on something that maybe you're okay at but not as proficient as the next person. Yeah. So by kind of making sure, um, you know, if you find your buddy and you guys are exactly the same, you have the same skill sets, it's probably not the best business partner to go in the business with. So that, that'd be one tip. I think that we've been, um, you know, it was unintentional. I didn't really sit out and think through that when I made my, my decision on who my business partner was, but with the benefit of, you know, several years of hindsight, that's been a, that's been a really good decision. And then the other thing that we've chose to do, which I think a lot of people at least start out that way is do the third party management. Um, you know, cause I really want to focus on, you know, finding deals, you know, you got to find deals and find money. That's kind of how you, how you make, uh, make money in this business. You got to find capital, find deals, everything else is sort of noise. You know, it's all really important. You got to operate, you got to, you know, be able to, uh, you know, communicate, uh, you know, you got to operate execute the, the, the operationally as well as with your, your business plan, you got to buy, right. You got to put the right debt on it, but you know, really the way you get paid is finding deals and finding money. Um, so, you know, kind of, so that allows us more time to focus on that and network with brokers and talk to investors and things along that elk. And I'm not like bogged down and much in like some HR issue on my site because the management company handles most of that. Then as we started growing and getting more asset management for the income, then we just started scaling up with, with uh, layers of employees below us. You know, getting operational help, making sure we have asset management help, making sure that we have uh, administrative help making sure that we start hiring and uh, are buying um, software to help kind of scale some of the stuff and investor. And we started out our investor database was uh, Google sheets and Excel sheets. And then now we have a a centralized investor data uh, base with an investor portal that our investors log in and helps us raise money. And we're a lot more efficient that way, but it, you know, costs 2000 bucks a month and you can't afford that when you start out, you don't have have zero in asset management income coming in. So as you start getting at, make, make sure when you're doing deals, you're getting asset management fee income because you're going to need that to support all the operational people. Because even to this day, I think even with uh, all the assets we have, we still have more overhead than we do asset management fee income coming in on a monthly basis. So we're still having to either do deals to, you know, kind of cover up the, the, the deficit and overhead or use some of the free cash flow off the properties that our ownership percentage gets to support it. So, you know, we're constantly trying to make sure we're, you know, having robust um, infrastructure in place so we can service everything. 
Um, so, you know, just kind of start thinking through that as you're, as you're growing, if you guys are legitimately serious about trying to grow and scale into a, a company of size with, you know, a couple thousand units or more, you know, you need to kind of think through, okay, you know, I need to start here and then, you know, um, cause, cause you're never going to have a perfect, um, your, your amount of expenses, uh, and the revenue come in, I always kind of go back and forth a little bit. So, you know, sometimes you have enough properties coming in that you have enough revenue, but you're, you don't have enough team members to pay for it. So you got too much work to do it. So then you go hire somebody. Now you have more expenses than what you do income coming in. So you go buy some more properties and you're constantly toggling back and forth. And that's just kind of, I think the life of a small business owner. And that's kind of how, how it goes until you get a, a, a certain scale. Yeah. I, I like that you talked about the asset management fee because a lot of people don't, uh, really, in my opinion, understand really what it is that are in this business that especially that don't have the experiences you do. A lot of people think, look at that asset management fee as an actual income source. And I think that's obviously the wrong way to be looking at it. You should be using that asset management fee to uh, grow your business, to make sure the assets actually being managed properly uh, versus thinking of it as uh, something you're going to put in, in in your account and yeah. and save live off of right yeah yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of people do i see i hear a lot of people talking about that oh it'd be great to have this asset management fee because then i'm making 30 40 whatever thousand dollars it is and it's like well no you're not making anything that's that's supposed to be a break-even deal and yeah. uh, that, and if if it's if it's not you're probably needing to add some something into your business um talk about uh, a mistake what, what's a what's a mistake that you've made and how have you learned and grown from that so we've been fortunate to not make any like major fatal mistakes but you know the market's been so damn good that uh even uh even people i'm sure any mistakes i've made for the most part have been have been covered up uh the one the one thing that does uh the, the biggest thing i think we've kind of made a, a mistake on certainly with the benefit of hindsight was that uh, a lot of the, uh, the first multiple years of us doing this business, we did a lot of long-term 10-year fixed rate money. Um, and there's nothing necessarily wrong per se with that, but what comes with a 10-year fixed rate loan was uh, a large either what they call the feasance prepayment penalty or yield yeah. maintenance prepayment penalty. So it's a really large thing. So the, the thought process at the time was a little more risk with the leverage. So let's take out the risk of the refinance by having a long-term fixed rate. And we're going to borrow money at 5%. And at some point, the rates are going to go up. And then the next buyer can come in and assume our mortgage at a below market rate. And I'll be accretive to my situation. So, so what happened was the rates have done nothing but stay flat or go down. And then when you go sell it, you're having to, um, that, that loan, instead of being an asset, it's a liability. So either you got to come in, someone assume it, because we only had one year of interest only when we did a lot of these loans to start. Now you sure. five or six years of Interest only is pretty readily available in today's marketplace, so it impacts the buyer's cash on cash. And then two, we have an above in market interest rate. Um, so either you got to have them come assume it, which affects their economics, and or they you got to suck it up and take a multiple million dollar prepayment penalty to offset it. And that's fine if we were in these deals for like, you know, thought that we we're going to be in these deals for 10 years, but we were going in these deals thinking we can get out in three to five years and we still put the long-term picture down. So we didn't do, um, uh, with, for the sense of safety, it was really kind of uh, certainly counterproductive because if we just would have put something with a, a flexible prepayment penalty on it, 
uh, knowing we're going to be in and out of these things in two years, we could have, you know, either implemented the plan and work to refinance it after that when our when our prepay either burns down or burns off all completely, uh, and or just go out and sell it. So that was one of the things. I don't think we, you know, we thought we were being smart and that we kind of have our cake and eat it too by having the debt that's assumable and be accretive, but it turned out to come back and buy this. And that's certainly why we've done really, really well. We would have done you know that much better if we didn't have to deal with these very, very large prepayment penalties along the way. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, interest rates, I think ever since I've been in the business, people have been talking about how interest rates are going up and they're eventually going to go up. And like you said, they've either been flat or gone down. And yeah, we've seen some uh, maybe slight adjustments uh, one way or the other, but it's basically overall since 2008 gone down. Um, So what type of, what type of loan are you putting on your properties today? Oh, it depends. Um, the most recent, we've, we've done a few things. Um, so here, uh, you know, like I said, we started out with basically 10 year Fannie Mae money. That was pretty typical for the first however many 15, 20 deals we did. Um, and then we, then we just we kind of got stuck a couple deals around the election time where we were in escrow mm. and weren't rate locked. So the rates started going up and then we ended up rate locking higher and our loan proceeds got cut. And that was a pretty rough time about three years ago when uh, after the election in 2016, if you guys flash back to what happened on the capital markets, that was tough. Um, so we pivoted and said, okay, you know, we got stuck on a few of these deals. Let's go out. We started uh, specifically targeting a lot of properties that had loan assumptions available. So we knew we got some some issues. So let's go try to take these people that maybe have six years left on their loan or seven years left or whatever it is, five years sure. left. Let's go do a loan assumption. So the seller will avoid that large prepayment penalty. So we'll pass all or at least the vast majority of the savings they get from not having to pay the yield maintenance, pass that along to us as the buyer. We assume the mortgage. We have to put a little bit more down. And we give up some interest only, but we save maybe a million or $2 million of the purchase price. We use that uh, loan assumption like a bridge loan effectively where we come, you know, we take it over, we reposition the property over the first two or three years. And the term goes from six years to maybe three years left. And then the way the formula works, the prepayment penalty burns down. So instead of having a $2 million prepaid, maybe we pay 600,000 or something down the road. And then, you know, but in the meantime, we force the NOI up and the value up and, so we did quite a few of those and, and you had a little less competition on these loan assumptions because just what I was saying, it kind of hurts your, your economics a little bit as a buyer. So we got real successful doing that. And then we had a handful of, uh, there's a uh, handful of non-recourse bridge programs out there as well. So we used a regional bank here and we did several, four or five loans with them to have a non-recourse bridge loan that would give, you know, between 70 and 75% of cost. And then here, most recently, we we kind of uh, have done uh, historically a lot of stuff with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The bigger we got, Freddie Mac actually came calling on us, and uh, they had a, uh, a floating rate kind of um, arm program. So you take a ten-year loan, you get five years interest only, and then you have a LIBOR plus a spread uh, product. So the way we did it, you locked out for a year, and then it's a one percent prepay thereafter. So we've done several deals like that here recently with kind of a LIBOR, LIBOR floating Freddie Mac uh, loan with a 10-year term, five-year I.O. So that's kind of a little bit of, a little bit of both worlds that you have a, a long maturity, you have enough I.O., but then you have flexibility on, on your the prepay. And they waive the one-point exit um, if you refinance it with Freddie Mac into a long-term fixed rate loan. So we've done some of that. So we're just really trying to be a little bit better about 
fitting our debt with our with you know the exit the um, model and, and and if we're taking a little bit of interest rate risk meaning that we're not having long-term fixed rate loan what we're doing is we're kind of um, scaling back the leverage a little bit where you know we used to do everything around 80 percent and then you know then start things are getting tighter so most stuff we're down 75 now we're somewhere between you know 65 and 70 so most of these deals loan to loan to value so think about one-third equity about two-third debt somewhere in that kind of general ballpark is is what most of the deals are doing today so if we have to refinance it we have a you know a little bit more margin of error from a uh you know loan to cost uh, perspective on the front end yeah are you doing a a, a cap on your on your rate yeah they, they make you buy a LIBOR buy a cap. cap so they yeah. make you buy a three-year LIBOR cap with uh you know max strike rate and what's happened as we're you know we're into july as we record this 20 uh 2019 so what's happened in the marketplace over the last several over the last several months is these uh, as a fed is expected to cut rates tomorrow so we'll see if mm-hmm. they cut it a quarter or a half that's a big uh, thing in late july 2019 so uh so libor has been come down quite a bit and the expectations of the marketplace is that libor is going to be lower than what it is today for the you know foreseeable first couple next couple of years so these caps are so inexpensive uh i just actually rate capped a deal today a 22 million dollar loan and our rate cap for three years was like eighteen thousand dollars so it was and we pro forma two months ago seventy five thousand dollars so you know we came in way inside of that uh because everyone in the marketplace feels that that libor is going to do nothing so if libor drops our you know our pay rate drops as well and our loans we should see materially significant um uh, savings uh, on our interest expense yeah, definitely. I I've got a couple deals uh, I did some bridge on, and uh, I'm I uh, when I purchased them I underwrote uh, at six uh, percent interest rate locking in, and we're getting close to being at the refinance state probably here at the end of the year. And I'm pretty excited because <laughs> it makes the numbers it makes the numbers look a lot better. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I'd race to get your property ready to go and take advantage of it while you can. Yeah. Yeah. Um so what advice would you give our, our listeners who are just getting started? Uh you know, obviously you started in a different position than some uh people that are listening are started, but let's just talk to as many people as we possibly can. How do we get started in this business? Yeah. A couple of things uh, I, I would um, give as advice. I mean, um, you know, first and foremost, you need to, you know, kind of take a personal assessment of yourself and kind of get real with what you have. So, you know, you have, uh, you know, certain level of financial resources, everyone's financial resources are a little bit different as well as you have, you know, certain level of relationships or lack of, or you live in a small town, middle of nowhere, you live in a major metropolitan area or whatever your situation is. So just to be, you know, do a personal stock yourself. Um, and then, you know, so, so that's, so you know, where you're starting with and just be realistic about it and then take steps accordingly. But, you know, the first and foremost thing you need to do is get educated. So, you know, I was fortunate from the standpoint that I had a uh, job that uh, paid me to get educated and learn the business where, you know, a lot of most people don't, right? So uh, if you're an engineer or if you're like an engineer, an IT engineer, or you're a salesperson or whatever you are, um, you know, that is kind of what it is. You have these certain professional skill sets that, you know, maybe I didn't have. So uh, there's a lot of good reputable um, programs out there. So join up with a, uh, you know, there's a lot of mentoring programs that you can join up with. 
Um, and if done right, I've seen a lot of people be extremely successful. It's not so much just the education you get, which is important. Um, you listen, you get education on podcasts like this or reading books. And these are, you know, as you're starting out, if you don't have much money, that's what I would start with. Just listen to every free podcast you can. Yeah. Watch a bunch of webinars, read, read several books, things like yeah. that. Base level education while you save money and try to try to accumulate some capital. Then two, you can then go join some of these groups, um, you know, some free meetups and things like that. Or if you actually have some money, you can just pay 20 grand, join a group and, and get there. And then once you're in there, um, you start network, network, network. So, you know, find out what you need. So just a puzzle in the way I kind of look at it, you know, do a deal. So like, you know, all these little pieces, you just kind of got to put it together and make sure it's clear. So if you have some money and you don't have experience, you find a partner that's uh, done a deal or two that uh, maybe partner up with, help confront some pursuit costs, uh, you know, whatever. And, that's a way to kind of on, get on train to a deal. Or if uh, you have uh, some experience and no money, then, you know, that's kind of the opposite of it. And then you need to make sure you network with passive investors. Um, if you're going to be an apartment syndicator, so make sure you, you always need money and you need to do that ahead of time. Um, so when you have a deal, it's not the time to start looking for money. You need to start working on that, building your list out, you know, build your database out, whether that's a robust database like I have or a Google sheet with a name, email, uh, phone number and kind of where you met them with some notes, you know, just kind of start with something simple, make sure you document everything and, and date when you did it. So you kind of have a reference point and then um, keep saying in front of them, that's a good way of doing it. And then the other part of it is you got to get networked with deals. If you want to be a sponsor and get some deal flow, then you need to like get, you know, get on all the list. Right. So yeah. whatever, whatever um, uh, metropolitan area or areas you want to be um, active in and look at deals, you know, find out who the brokers are that do deals in that, that area and make sure you sign up for Marcus and Mill and Chap and Brigadia and Newmark and, you know, whoever else and CBRE, whatever in your market. And each market is different because, you know, this group in this town, you know, is a Brigadia town and that group is a, uh, you know, CBRE town or whoever. They've got the pecking order. And then, um, you know, make sure you, uh, you know, sign up for the list, start underwriting deals. Make sure once you get educated, then you start, you start reaching out to these brokers start kind of, you know, scheduling tours, go on tours, underwrite deals, give the brokers feedback, um, you know, do, do things like that. Um, one of the, one of the, you know, the, one of the things I like to say is this is not a business you can do at your desk or at home. You got to get out, you got to get to know people, you got to get networked. So one of the examples I like to use, like in Dallas, Fort Worth, and then most of the major cities across the country, uh, you know, Marcus and Millichap is a big investment sales apartment broker in many, many markets. And they'll have a big um, multifamily conference in the fall in, in Dallas in October every single year. Yep. And uh, they do the same thing in Houston, New York, wherever. So you Everywhere. know who's going to uh, be there is every broker in that city for Marcus and Millichap. So what you can do is go spend $300, buy a ticket, go to the conference, and then all those guys are going to be there. So that's a good way to kind of get out, know, meet these people, get networked. Because um, if they don't know, like, and trust you, they're not going to do business with you, you know? Yep. So that's that's kind of the early grounds. But I wouldn't do that until at least you have a base level education. Because if you come in and you don't understand what the hell you're talking about, they're going to pick you out as a fraud. And then you're going to, it's going to come sets, back. To it sets fun. you back years. Yeah. yeah. So those are kind of the, the basic things as we're, as we're, we're um, getting out there. And, um, you know, so education, networking, uh, both with passive investors and with, uh, 
with brokers and they go to two separate events. So you need to kind of make sure you're specifically targeting both of them yeah. and, uh, you know, making sure that you're, you know, do what you say you're going to do, follow up with people, both investors and with, uh, and with the brokers. And, uh, you know, those are kind of some, you know, and then finally, I guess, you know, just don't be a jerk, you know, people like to <laughs> because the people they like. So if you're rude and you, um, you know, you're always trying to pick people apart and things like that, that just tends to not work very well. Yeah, it's a small industry and yeah. it, it seems like it shouldn't be, but it's a, it's a, it's a small industry. There's not, if any, any particular town, there's not that many of the uh, main players. There's some other people that dabble, but as far as the main players go, especially, it's just a small market. And then if you're, you're like serious about it and you want to like do this business in scale, um, I see a lot of people, I think, make mistakes because they have, um, you know, oh, I want a deal. Any deal is a good deal. I don't care where it's yeah. located. Yeah. So they buy a deal in Alabama, the one in Indiana, the one in Ohio, and the one in Kentucky. And then they're spread all over with 50 unit properties all over the entire country. And it's really hard to manage that one. And then two, you know, you've got to get a reputation in that marketplace. So if you just own one little deal in this little marketplace, there's only... 10,000 units that marketplace compared to like Dallas Fort Worth has 800,000 market rate apartment units. You know, how many units can we really grow and scale? And it's yeah. not the best use of time. So if you want to be a player that, that owns you know, thousands of units, you know, generally speaking, you need to be in a major metropolitan area. Maybe you pick two or three and you focus on those. Don't pick, yeah. don't focus on 20. So focus yeah. on one or two to start. And then once you get a good foothold, you can then from that point, you can then, no, I, so I was in Dallas. We did a bunch of stuff in Dallas, and we did that for five years. And then we went to Austin, where we had a physical presence, and that's a natural expansion for us because it's three hours away, and a lot of people own in both markets. And maybe we go to Houston, or maybe we go to, you know, Phoenix or Atlanta or wherever we go. But you know, we have our, our, our stronghold and in, in, at home yeah. uh, in our backyards. But if you live in a place where home isn't isn't favorable, you know, you live in LA and you can't make it make sense maybe focus on Phoenix or focus on, you know, wherever Atlanta or Salt Lake city or, or some market like but that. Make one or two markets, your focus, not 10 markets, right. 20 markets. Especially and it's easier right for me because I get in my car and go drive and look at something. If you got to yeah. get on a plane, that's, that's harder, especially challenging kids and yeah. things like that. Life kind of gets in the way. So, you know, just don't, don't spread yourself too thin. If you really, really want to be um, serious about this business, I think that's a mistake. A lot of people do. Yeah, I agree 100%. A lot of things that you said there, I think anybody who's uh, um, newer in this business needs to rewind that the last about five minutes and listen to that again, because there's a lot of really good nuggets in there. I do some coaching. Um, and a lot of the mistakes or a lot of the things that you said, I see a lot of people making those mistakes. A lot of people don't do that personal assessment. They don't understand really where they're at. They think they can go out and get this property under contract, 200 unit property and raise money for it. And they have very little network. They can maybe raise, you know, a hundred or $200,000. Uh, they have literally no net worth uh, and they have no money in their bank account. And you go, well, what are you going to do? You yeah. can't do this deal. Unfortunately, it takes money to do a deal, whether you get this thing under contract or not, likely you're not going to ever get it on a contract. Uh, but you have to have a plan in place. It doesn't mean that you can't do the deal. You just have to understand what you're missing. Yeah. And so we have to fill those gaps in order to do that deal. And that's where the education that you talked about, 
comes in hand. And I really appreciate that you talked about getting educated and waiting to talk to brokers because that's something I preach a lot is a lot of people want to reach out to the brokers. That's, that's the first thing they do because they hear it's super important, which it is. But if you're reaching out to these brokers and you don't know what cap rate is and you don't know uh, IRR and you don't know like a, a lot of these terms, the broker's going to sniff you out real quick, like you mentioned. Yeah, and you just lost a, your reputation uh, or you gained a, you gained a reputation you don't want, uh, and they're not going to do business with you. So yeah, that, I think the other thing along those lines, too, uh, as another like little pro tip, if you're starting out, you know, you go to your, your town and then, you know, CBRE is a big shop in town. So these, these, all these brokers, team, uh, brokers work as teams. So it's not one broker. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. You know, usually a senior. Uh, maybe if it's a bigger team, you have a couple like more senior level guys, but there's the main yeah. guy, a few senior level guys, and then a bunch of junior guys that are kind of starting out. So yeah. you don't want to come in swinging at the, at the king of the, of the group. You know, if you're coming in, you start kind of, find out who the junior guy is, the guy that they send to go do all the tours of people they don't know, start trying to build a relationship with them because that junior broker is hungry and trying to build relationships, yeah. work his way, his or her way up the, uh, the food chain. So I think that would be that's you know, great 25 advice. year old that you should talk to, not the, not the 55 year old when you're starting out in this business. Yeah, that, that's actually, that's great advice. Excellent advice. Likely also the 25 year old isn't going to be, uh, oftentimes around in that. So if you do make a fool of yourself, you can recover from it a little quicker too. Uh, right. You know, you could wait for six months and talk to the next 25-year-old uh, right. that gets hired. So, uh, But yeah, that's fantastic advice too because a senior broker is just not going to want to talk to you if you don't. Yeah, because they've done 10 deals with a guy like me and why yeah. the hell they want to talk to you if it's going to call yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Well, you know what? Uh, I could probably keep on going on with this conversation for a while, but uh, I want to respect your time. So I want to wrap up. I got a couple questions to wrap with. Uh, first of all, what is a daily habit that you do for success? Daily habit I do for success. So, you know, I always try to, um, I, I tend to go down the rabbit hole sometimes. I mean, we're pretty productive, but um, you know, what I always try to do is make sure I, I do a good job of trying to prioritize what's the most important thing I need to accomplish that day. And I, I do my best. I'm not perfect about it, but I do my best to try to prioritize those things. Mm. And I also try to, you know, make make it a point to think about, you know, I have a, a thousand things on my, my to-do list at any one given time. And I just need to make sure that I'm prioritizing the ones that, that you know, either find deals or find money. So you talk yeah. to investors, talk yeah. to brokers, you know, things along those natures. Cause, cause I could get, I could get stuck at doing some crazy administrative tasks that maybe makes you feel better, but it's not really at the end of the day going to, going to help you achieve my goals. So just making sure I just do a good job to prioritize what, what's really needs to be done and what would be nice to get done. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. Um, how do you like to give back? Uh, you know, I like, so, so a couple things. I mean, I, I, um, you know, really kind of the biggest thing is, you know, I, I like to kind of help people that are uh, getting started out. I, you know, don't have a coaching program or anything like that, but I like to do podcasts uh, in like, like yourself, or we actually co-host a podcast called the uh, Old Capital Real Estate Investing Podcast. So you can yep. find that on iTunes or Stitcher or probably anywhere that you're listening to me right now. If you just type in Old Capital, you'll find that on there or you go to oldcapitalpodcast.com. So there, we just, uh, you know, do do podcasts and talk uh, talk about apartment investing, and uh, it's a really kind of a niche uh, topic here. So if you're if you're an apartment nerd, it's uh, the one for you. If you don't like apartments, we don't kind of go all over the map. It's very 
very focused, but um, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, meaty type stuff. So it's not yeah. very fluffy. So if you, uh, you know, you're trying to trying to learn, um, that that's a good way of trying to do that. So just trying to make sure, um, you know, why I've only been owning apartments for six years as a longtime banker, and uh, you know, I guess what 2019. So uh, yeah, a decade, twelve, ten to twelve years ago, I was a I was a grim reaper punching people's lights out. So I have a lot of uh, uh, lessons I learned from there. So I always try to make sure that, uh, you know, I, I let people know that this has been a great environment that we've been in, but trees don't grow to the sky. So right. uh, you, know, you kind of make some of these similar mistakes at some point it's going to cycle. And right now everything's going up. So you're going to cover up every single mistake that you make. But at some point, um, you know, that if you, if you make a poor decision, all this can come back and have a repercussion. So trying to impart some wisdom uh, that I have and, you know, a lot of people that we have on uh, just kind of what we saw happen and maybe ways to structurally set your deal up to, to mitigate a lot of those risks. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Uh, what's your favorite book, business or real estate related? You know, really, uh, my buddy uh, kind of became buddies with them. Ken McElroy, I like his two yeah, books. I like his ABC, uh, Real Estate Investing, as well as uh, the Vance Real Estate Investing Guide, I think. But I think Ken did two, two good books. And really, honestly, uh, I'm, uh, I do all the tax returns for us. We do like 1,200 K1s a year or something. I process 30 some odd tax returns. So uh, I'm, a, I'm kind of become a little tax, uh, mini tax expert, unlicensed mini tax expert. So also, <laughs> I think, uh, the tax free wealth that Tom Wheelwright gave me a lot yep. of good. Um, ideas and concepts that I can go explore with my accountant, and we've been able to implement a lot of the the basic principles and strategies to, to pretty um, tremendous results. Awesome. Uh, last question before we wrap: What are your three pillars of wealth creation? Three pillars of wealth creation, huh? Well, let me think about that. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer in like real things. You know, I know I know the government says there's no inflation really but uh there's certainly been an asset price inflation because i know apartments have basically tripled here in the last <laughs> decade or so right so especially in Dallas, labor's up you know everything's up right yep. insurance is up you know my lifestyle's up everything's up right um so you know i think at some point uh, even though the headline's not there i think that at some point because they keep printing more and more money so i think if you get real real things you know so like uh, whether that be precious metals or whether that be um, you know, real estate or whether you invest in uh, your business or your education. I think those are some things that you need to kind of invest in. Um, so, you know, then especially if you have stuff leveraged that produce positive cash flow. Um, you know, what I like about what I like about apartment investing and, and the business that I'm in, it's really, really simple. You know, it's not always easy to go out and execute, but at its core, you buy something at a good price that's undervalued, you improve uh, performance and collections, you increase the value. Voila, you get rich, especially if you do a leverage, you know, and every yeah. dollar you increase right now is somewhere between 16 to 20 to value. So it's it's a pretty leveraged business, um, especially if you're able to go in, put a little bit of your own money in, but then raise money from others and get disproportionate ownership by doing a syndication. And then if you can take uh, take uh, over the uh, tax code and become uh, proficient in that, you do all that while paying no income tax. So it's a pretty powerful business um so yep. that's kind of my main business and then as we're diversifying into like oil and gas or you know something else that's a real economy some sort of commodity i think at some point when inflation starts coming that should kind of help protect 
um, the money. So I don't know if that answered your question, but that's kind of kind of what I do. And I think the most uh, important thing you do is invest in yourself. So make sure that I'm constantly trying to learn. I'm not the biggest reader in the world. But I'm constantly listening to podcasts or or trying to listen to those people that have done more than me and try to try to um, you know constantly tweak what we're doing and and uh, either to help maximize what what we're doing from um, you know value creation standpoint or mitigate as much risk as possible. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, well, Michael, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, really two ways. Uh, the, the best way, if you really want to learn a whole lot more about me, we have probably 300 podcast episodes. Just go, uh, like I said, old capital podcast. Uh, you can search on iTunes stickers or oldcapitalpodcast.com. Or the way we operate uh, and raise capital is through my company, SPI Advisory. So you can simply just go to www.spiadvisory.com. That's SPI, like spy, advisory.com. There, there's a uh, contact us form. If you fill that out, I'm always happy to have a 10 to 15 minute telephone call with uh, listeners I meet off of uh, either our podcast or other ones. If you want to learn a little bit more about kind of what we do. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the time uh, and tons of great value. So I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this episode and definitely appreciate uh, the time you were able to give us. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it so much, Todd. Yeah. Have a good, have a good rest of the day. A special thanks to Michael Becker for joining us on the show. Appreciate the time he was able to spend with us. And uh, a couple things that I, I took from this episode among many uh, is, first of all, it, it's all about, if you want to scale, it's all about building those relationships. Uh, next thing he talks about is just being intentional, understanding what you want to do and be intentional with everything that you do, every choice that you make. Uh, the last thing is he talks about just finding partners. And we talked about it before, building that team, finding partners that are complementary skills that can you know, help you push to the next level. Finding that third-party property manager, finding other partners, other people that can team up with you uh, and really helping you push that next level. Again, appreciate uh, Michael for joining us. And go back to this episode rewind and decide to write something down, take something from this episode. And I challenge you to take at least one thing and implement into your business today, something that's going to help you push to that next level and implement that, make, make it a choice that you're going to be intentional uh, on doing that activity to get yourself to that next level to push on. So I appreciate uh, you listening and enjoy the rest of your day. Make every day a Saturday. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. A couple things before we go again, go on to our Facebook page, Pillars of Wealth. We'd love to have you on there. Go on to iTunes, give us a rating and review and subscribe to the show. Also, um, you know, don't forget, reach out to me if you want any help with uh, potentially growing your business and reach out to John Styles to help you buy or sell real estate. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Have a fantastic the rest of the day. And as I say, make every day a Saturday. <laughs>